In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Reza, and I have the honor, the <laughs> good fortune of no, no, uh, no, being don't. with uh, Brother Taliban today in the studio. No, thank you very much. Afternoon. Yes, no, thank you very much for that. Uh, I was going to actually flip it back. I was going to have <laughs> the honor of being <laughs> in the studio first. with Imam. <laughs> Raza Ahmed, but uh, no, no, it's uh, it's been a long time since we presented together. It's been a together. while, yes. I think We've we should do gig. some more shuffling throughout the week. Just I to think so, just to, to p- put to people off. I was like, oh, is it Friday? <laughs> is it Monday? What is it? I, I, I noticed how professionally uh, you you introduced us because you said another episode or oh, another edition <laughs> of the Drive Time Show. Um, no, I mean it's freezing, isn't it? I mean oh, yeah. you've got uh, the Met Office we got the snow that, after all. Yeah, but it was fleeting. Yeah so to speak, fleeting, but it is pretty cold. And I think the cold snap is supposed to be with us for the rest of the, yeah. the week. we got the yellow warning so, as well for so ice. So get those thermals on out there. Make listeners. sure your tires are up to the standard and you don't slip around on the streets. Um, and of course, keep the weather warnings in mind. Mm-hmm. Be safe out there. Brother Talib, what are we speaking about today? Well, we've got two topics, as usual, on uh, the Drive Time Show. Uh, in the first hour, we will be dealing with uh, Europe, the rise of anti-Islamic leaders. So we're just uh, looking at, I suppose, the politics of uh, Europe. And we say just Europe, but also here uh, domestically in Great Britain, in the UK. Um, and we see that uh, it's, I suppose, this branded popular hmm. uh, politics now. And we'll look at uh, why they are uh, scapegoating really, Islam, um, and I suppose it's It's an easy target for them, isn't it, Raza? Really? We will find out more. Yeah. And then... And in the second hour, very topical, uh, with the US uh, foray back into space, we'll be looking at space exploration. Um, you know, the aspects of it, how it's developing. Is it still a viable... Um, a viable... I suppose pursuit. Thing, yeah, pursuit. Yes, yeah. sorry, pursuit out there. I mean, there are a lot of countries uh, apart from the US uh, who have made great strides. Um, you're looking at myself. It's like, <laughs> this is I am it's a bit father of them. Yeah, yeah. China, China being one of them. Uh, India as well. Yeah. Um, so there is that pursuit. And you know, when when I was looking at this topic, I mean, we have to have that idea of exploration out into space right because you know even in the first verse mm. right of uh, the holy quran it says you know god is the master of all the worlds yes so there must be sentient beings out there right yeah uh, on another on another planet so it's incumbent upon us to to stretch the boundaries and reach out to them so we're dealing with that in the second hour and on that topic, we're asking you a question on our Instagram poll. So go to our Instagram story, Voice, Voice of Islam UK. Do you think we will ever be able to establish civilization on planet Mars? It's a yes, mm. no, or unsure option. But of course, if you want to leave a comment, feel free to do so. Mm-hmm. Now, Islamophobia is on the rise in Europe and some of their leaders have been claiming that Islam and European civilization are not compatible with each other. This is a line that we have not heard recently. It's been in the news. It's been something that has been said over the past decade or more even. 
But closer to the time that we live in, the Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney quite recently spoke about this and said that there is a process of Islamization in Europe that is very distant from the values of our civilization. She also said that she believed there is a problem of compatibility between Islamic culture or a certain interpretation of Islamic culture and the rights and values of our civilization. If you remember that previously she introduced a bill in 2016 for the introduction of the crime of Islamic fundamentalism, and in the same year she also called for no Muslim immigrants to be allowed to enter Italy. Our neighbors uh, across the pond in Holland, for example, they um, Mm -hmm. elected at this year's general election the Dutch politician Geert Wilders and France's Marine Le Pen are also known for their anti-Islamic views. Now, Geert Wilders' party, as I said, they won in November in the Netherlands the general election. And according to the BBC, he had previously vowed to ban mosques and Islamic schools. Now, the interesting thing is, if you ask him, and the the term right-wing politician or right-wing will come up, but he doesn't like to be called far-right. Did mm. you know that? No, I didn't realize <clears throat> that because I suppose no one likes to, let, let's put like and like here yeah, and compare apples and pears. Yeah. No one likes to be called a racist. Yeah. But their um, behavior, yeah. what they say, their attitude uh, would imply that, say, for instance, you don't have any multi ethnic, multicultural friends, right? You stick to your own ethnicity. Um, you espouse certain views, then it's as plain as your nose what you are. Yeah. So I'm doing this comparison. Uh, so Kurt, Kurt Welders is a right winger because he espouses all yeah. those things that a right winger would say. And the way they they shape it, or they they claim it, or they they say it's we're speaking up for the common people. Mm-hmm. This is what the Dutch population thinks about. This is what the French people think. This mm-hmm. is what the Italian people uh, have to say. Um, and we are basically saying it. But if you look at his political career over the last 20, 30 years or 25 years, uh, that's the time that he's been in Dutch politics. He had to tone it down. Mm-hmm. And when he did tone it down, I mean, look, the manifesto is the same. The agenda is the same, but the rhetoric has changed slightly mm-hmm. in the sense that he had tone, had to tone it down a little bit, but the points are still the same. And now they have had this, this huge victor- victory, which sent shockwaves through mm-hmm. uh, the European continent. I mean, and the thing is, or is that uh, the same could be said in France with uh, Marine Le Pen. Yeah, yeah. She only very, very closely lost right to yeah. Macron yeah. Uh, in the presidential elections in the last presidential election so you do I mean when they say they, they are the uh, the voice of the public oh, yeah. we have to understand well are they truly it's like you're saying it's just re um, packaging mm. okay repackaging a very uh, right wing we like to say right wing and when, when, when we say right wing I suppose I would uh, mean in that sense that you are very pro-nationalist. Mm. Uh, you espouse those views which are very anti-migrant and those are the two main things, right, mm. that you are uh, in terms of being right-wing. Now, that to me has been a part of popular or the politics, I wouldn't say popular, but politics uh, within 
the Western Hemisphere, yeah. let's say, since 2016 now. Uh, if you remember, uh, I the go then, I go back even further. Really, 2001. Really, isn't well, that, okay. isn't that where everything just kicked off? Okay, so yes, you know, with the obviously with the bombing, yeah. right, uh, of the twin towers. But I, I don't think that there was such a sea change, hmm. right? Okay, the sentiment had turned against Islam because suddenly you had Islam was you know in the news, yeah, right, yeah. for doing something so horrendous really um or let's say the perpetrators right of They're the twin so towers islam, right yeah. so called islam now i personally and why i say around about 2016 is that you had come to the forefront say for instance in in america trump mm. uh here 2016 you had johnson mm. uh, in india you know you have this nationalist uh, in in the guise of Modi, right? And okay, so Johnson and Trump have fallen by the wayside, uh, whilst Modi has secured his power base, yes. right? And he's still preaching to those converted, you know, his conversion within India mm. and keeping that power base strong. So it shows that you know these types of populist um, politics, right? Do they actually have any meat to them? You know, do they really? Uh, benefit the countries that you know they're they're resident in. So what I mean by that is, if we look at, say, for instance, the UK, mm. all those things about why, say, for instance, we had a referendum in 2016 to leave the European Union. Uh, it was it was won by the Leave uh, campaign on two platforms: one being sovereignty, and the other being immigration. Now, over this period of time. Uh, we've seen that the immigration part was a was um, a fallacy, yeah. right? Because I think uh, net migration into the UK hit seven hundred thousand last year. So how's that worked out? <laughs> it hasn't, has it? Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it was a false false promise, right? Mm. Uh, as many, I suppose, promises or manifestos are. So that's what I'm saying. In terms of Europe. Uh, we're you know looking at Holland here. We're looking at Italy. We're looking at France. So, have their economies actually benefited from having these right-wing politics in situ now? Have they become safer? The, yeah. The, the societies have they become safer? <clears throat> you have the example of Germany as well. Yeah. With the rise of the AFD, for example, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing. For me, it is a bit surprising. It's a bit. Um, sad, mm-hmm. I'd say, because look, I we came to to Europe, but we came to Germany in 1989, in a time where I think there wasn't such an influx of immigrants, there wasn't such a rise of Islam or the knowledge of Islam that we have today. So the sad part is that even after 30 plus years, you are still talking about issues like this. Mm-hmm. I do agree with some extent um, when when I mentioned in the beginning about Georgia Maloney, she saying that the the Islamic fundamentalism or this this extreme version of, 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 of Islam that some people associate themselves that is something that we disagree with it, uh, as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I mean, there is no room, there is no teaching, there is no verse of the Holy Quran that talks about the killing, the harm of innocent people who have 
nothing to do with 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 anything that is completely uh, something that you need to reject categorically there is no compulsion in matters of faith there is no compulsion in religion so all of that putting aside the word islam using that as your premise for for your uh, political gains and for your polit- political aspirations that is something i think is is very dangerous mm-hmm. because no matter what you do no matter how you spin it no matter what you do it's not going anywhere mm-hmm. but don't you find that uh and how you frame that now is that you know anything that you uh, approach the uh, approach the subject of islam right has a negative connotation it, to, to in today's world it in does. today's yes. world yes. right and that's an unfortunate thing because we have over 1 billion yeah one billion followers of Islam, and it's the very small minority of which get yeah. that's it media coverage, right? Get highlighted. But I think we've got our first guest to talk more about this. Yes. Uh, so joining us now is Professor Martin Conway. He's a professor uh, of contemporary European history at the University of Oxford and the author of a number of books on the 20th century Europe, including Western Europe's Democratic Age, 1945 to 68. Professor Conway, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to The Draft Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for joining us today. I would like to ask you, before we get to today's political situation, Islamophobia, historically in Europe, when we look at that, how do you think has that evolved? And in your view, what are some of the root causes of Islamophobia in Europe? And and, and are they valid to some degree? Yes, well, we shouldn't depress ourselves. It's not as if Islamophobia (laughs) has been a continuous phenomenon in European history, there have been whole periods when, you know, to put it perhaps rather negatively, the the focus of European hostility has been on other religions and Islam, and there is a long tradition of Islamophilia in many ways in some areas of Europe towards the great riches of the Islamic tradition and indeed of Oriental and Middle Eastern cultures more generally. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it is true that over the last century uh, there have been surges of this sort of anti-Islamic sentiment. and. The the straightforward answer would be that it often has very little to do with Islam itself. Islam is a convenient antithesis of what people imagine Europe to be. And so the more that they might define Europe as Christian or they might define Europe as being Western, so they define Islam as being the other against which they Mm. would need to mobilize. So it's very rarely about quite obviously the facts of islam it's much more even about what people imagine islam to be it's more about how europe acquires its self definition through thinking of itself as different from islam mm. so really you're talking about um something is in terms of when we're we're looking at countries uh, political persuasions and how they view islam and islamophobia is just is it just a, a convenient scapegoat then well scapegoat is too easy a word isn't it mm. you know it's the construction of particular identities that you find in european countries across the last 100 years and perhaps particularly over the last 30 years that lead them to identify islam as being somehow the enemy or the opposite of what they want to be. And the most obvious example currently in Europe, I would have thought, is the Netherlands, mm-hmm. which has constructed an image of itself as being the um, the embodiment of a certain sort of progressive, tolerant, modern society. 
and therefore, rather bizarrely, constructs Islam as being the opposite mm -hmm. of that. And therefore, Islam is the way of talking, anti-Islamic sentiment, sorry, is the way of talking about Dutch identity in the 21st century. But, you know, you can find that elsewhere. Obviously, the more that people resort to languages of Christian identity in Europe, then that often leads them into some sort of, you know, con negative construction of Islam. The whole construction of Europe as a political entity after the Second World War, the European Economic Community and all that, the European Union of today, that too has often had a kind of, for all its talk of pluralism, a certain sort of self-definition of Europe as being a distinctive Western society, mm -hmm. which often carries with it a certain sort of anti-Islam rhetoric. Mm. So, uh, Professor, to, to what extent do you think you know, these political leaders, right, and the rhetoric that they have, have played a role in this rise in anti-Islamic uh, uh, sentiment within Europe? Well, we could think of anti-Islamic sentiment as coming from the streets, mm -hmm. as coming from, say, the suburbs of Paris, where there are obviously real problems that none of us should deny about the coexistence of different communities. Or we could think of it as coming from a political media world. And I'm always more inclined to think of the political media world, because mm -hmm. that's the, that in some respects seems to be where the real responsibility lies for legitimating anti-Islamic sentiment. Mm -hmm. But when you say, you know, on the streets of Paris or on the streets of our cities around Europe, yeah. isn't that more a uh, problem of integration? It is. It's the failure of, a, of a certain politics of integration. And that's not that's not obviously exclusively about Islamic communities. Mm. It's about many other communities. And, you know, we shouldn't keep anti-Semitism out of this discussion. You know, mm -hmm. there, too, there is a, another story that we could bring into this. But, yes, Europe does not the default situation of Europe is not multi-religious tolerance. The default situation of Europe across the centuries has been about the prioritizing of certain identities of Europe that are implicitly or explicitly um, discriminatory against other communities. And it could, that could be race or it could be color or it could be the Jewish religion or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, I wanted to echo what uh, Brother Talib mentioned here as well, because when we look at uh, Gerd Wilders and the phrases that he's used, as well as in, in, in France, it it's talks about specific communities. The Moroccan community is yeah. something that has been brought up by, by Mr. Wilders in, in the past uh, quite yeah. frequently, to which he had to go to court as well. But in that, I think this 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 graying of lines of what religion is, what uh, ethnic communities or communities from different countries Culture. and background cultures as well, mm. yes. that is that responsibility falls on the political elite, doesn't it, to differentiate? Because people, when we look at, I was looking at some of the the, the figures for for the voters, the the age of, of of the people who voted in in the general election. They were aged 50 and above. Of course, yeah. they're going to believe what you said, uh, you know, the political media, what, what they're going to tell them. So who, who holds them account to, 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 to what they say and how they phrase it? Is, is, there, is there an institution? Is there anything that, that you can tell us about that? How are, are there any legal or, or policy measures that, that are in place? Well, the European Union, the Council of Europe, the European Court of Human Rights are all institutions that seek to institutionalize a certain sort of pluralism and a spirit of free debate in, and mutual respect in European society. 
but the sad truth is that often the actions of those organizations just um, are welcomed by those who would want to be intolerant mm. because they create the sense, which I think we also recognize from the current problems of Donald Trump, you know, actually bring popularity mm. by creating the impression that they, you, are, you are the voice of the people who are being persecuted by a legal or political elite. This, this is the situation of populism that has developed in Europe since the 1980s. Uh, it's an easy word to use, populism, and I think we could debate its meaning for you know, much longer than we have for this discussion. But you know, it's a basically a shorthand for saying that a certain sort of them v. us rhetoric has developed in European politics over the last 40 years, and I don't think there's any simple way of getting rid of that. Mm. So, Professor, I mean, how... I mean, um, Rosa was saying, is there any way to bring um, these individuals, right, who represent their governments, to to account? And you, know, you said the European Human Courts, uh, Human Rights uh, Court, uh, and these institutions are there. But in in terms of you know, uh, how can we say, for instance, even here in the UK, Islamophobia in itself? is not rated as a crime. I mean, I think it's a subheading of a hate crime, whilst, say, for instance, um, anti-Semitism is a crime, which you can go to the police and report. Is, you know, why is there this discrimination then? I think discrimination is a big word to use about that. I mean, I think there are obvious historic reasons why anti-Semitism has a particular resonance in European culture. Mm -hmm. But I would be entirely in favor of putting all forms of hate speech on the same level. And I think most people would be in, in European societies. And it may be that legislation is needed to catch up with the need for that reality. But, you know, there's... There's different levels to this, aren't there? There's the neighborhood social integration politics of many European cities where uh, divisions are often along racial or color or religious lines. There's the legislative element that you're describing. And then probably there's a broader element of actually making Europeans think of Europe as being a pluralist society rather than it being... Uh, essentially something that is either white or European or um, somehow very Christian, a particular Mm. reading of Europe. Mm -hmm. Is that maybe one of the reasons why many more countries are considering an exit from from the European Union, I mean, we 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 know about Nexit uh, being next on the list. Well, <laughs> yes, we put, put any number of uh, words in front of bruh, and you've, you've got the reality of the next ten years. Well, isn't it interesting that actually a lot of those uh, let's call them extremist uh, political movements of the right have actually moved rather quietly towards the middle ground. The Meloni government in yes. Italy has many unpleasant elements, but it's not talking about leaving the European Union. And it's clear that in many ways it's trying to play down some of its intolerant messages in favor of being a, a good European citizen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not about to defend her at all, but you know I think that the, it, we can frighten ourselves by imagining all sorts of um, dire futures for Europe. But I think that what's been interesting in the last couple of years for me has been the extent to which politicians who we formerly thought of as being on the very extreme right of politics, such as Marine Le Pen in France, you know, have actually been developing a much more cautious approach, yes. not just to the European Union, but also to some extent to the issue of Islam. Mm-hmm. And um, let's not assume that everybody becomes more and more anti-Islamic.
that's 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 the hope that we I think we should have, um, <laughs> especially <Yeah>. considering. <laughs> I mean, look, then it's the next generation that we will decide where we as a collective will be heading. And I think for me personally, having grown up in the society and you know having the fortune uh, of of living in different countries, uh, Germany here, uh, North America. The next generation brings brings hope because this mm. is the generation that or the next generations, because they have grown up with with these communities within these communities that are being being yeah, with the actual pluralism exactly which uh, say for instance the EU European actually espouse too. I mean, well, it's one of those things. It's you know we live here in London, and London is a multicultural or yeah. wants to um, advertise itself globally as a multicultural city and i think uh, that's that's where we are at at the moment there's this schism whereby um multiculturalism is not necessarily a, a good thing to be uh in terms of when we look at these right wing uh, po- uh politicians yes and if you define if you ask people to define whether they are multicultural on the whole they will reject the label mm-hmm. but the practice of how people live in major cities like london is of course that they uh, they practice that every day yeah exactly professor martin conway thank you very much for your time sir it's great to have you on and uh, greatly appreciate you coming on have a great day and a fantastic evening ahead thank you so much for joining thank us you. today once again peace be upon you thank you for the invitation thank goodbye you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Professor Martin Conway, Professor of Contemporary European History at the University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, we're asking you a question in regards to our next topic uh, after the news at five, which is on space exploration. Have we lost the drive, the passion? And uh, if you believe that one day we will be landing on Mars, we will be establishing maybe a, a, a colony on, on, on planet Mars, then do cast your vote on our Instagram story. Go to Voice of Sam UK. And if you want, leave us a comment as well. Mm. Um, and in terms of, you know, when we look at uh, politicians in Europe, um, you know, and according to the Middle East Eye, Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmer are two uh, right-wing candidates who have urged for an Islamic or Islamist separation, separatism law, to fight political Islam. Uh, Le Pen, who was the runner-up to Emmanuel Macron in 2017 and 2022 uh, presidential elections, uh, has espoused these anti-Islamic views. Uh, She has uh, vowed to ban the Muslim headscarf in public if she had won those elections. Uh, Eric Zemmer, a former TV pundit with multiple hate speech convictions, has called on French Muslims to renounce the practice of Islam. He said the French Muslims should be given a choice between Islam and France so that they are French. Uh, So if they are French, they have to let go of what their religion is. Which I don't mind. No, but the thing is, Reza, I don't mind you saying that as long as you were to say, okay, you espouse that you are you, your allegiance is to your country first and foremost, religion second. So why doesn't he include Christianity, Buddhism, everything else, you know, under the sun? But why is he picking on Islam? Because that's where the danger supposedly lies. <laughs> but what is I the mean, danger? The, you, you, you tell me. That's the question. I mean, I, we're I, asking. I think you know, for our listeners out there, we, we're actually talking about this before we came live, and uh, both Rezam and myself. And it is unfortunate that uh, media 
plays a big part in this. And the negative side of Islam is just for everyone to see. Yeah. Right? Everyone to see. Um, but they do not, in anyone's imagination, wildest imagination, they're not the majority. They are but a fragment, yes. right, of the majority of true believers, true believers in Islam out there. Um, I mean, Islam is a peaceful religion um, that teaches its followers to be faithful and loyal to their country of residence. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said that the love of one's country is a part of their faith. Uh, our own worldwide head uh, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Masra Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, said in his address to the mil- at the military headquarters in Koblenz in Germany back in 2012, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, himself taught that the love for one's nation is a part of faith. Thus, sincere patriotism is a requirement in Islam. To truly love God and Islam requires a person to love his nation. It's quite clear, therefore, that there can be no conflict of interest between a person's love for God and love for his country, as love for one's country has been made part of Islam. It's quite clear that a Muslim must strive to reach the highest standards of loyalty to his chosen country, because that is a means of reaching God and becoming close to him. Hence, it is, impo- impo- it is impossible that the love of a true Muslim holds for God could ever prove to be an impediment or barrier preventing him from displaying true love and faithfulness to his country. And, and I think there you have it in a nutshell. Yeah, there it is. I mean, this is this is something that the Ahmadi Muslim community has been emphasizing on for decades now. I mean, here in the UK alone, we celebrated our centenary of having established the community in the UK. What was it? 2018, 17, yeah. 16, like it's been, it's been a few years. It's been a hundred years. It's been a hundred years plus. It's been more than a hundred years. And you had the same thing in Germany. And in Germany, again, because I speak to people in, in, I have some friends and family as well in Germany. The question that is still being debated is, does Islam belong to Germany? Which again, is the same question that is being posed to uh, the people of of, of France, of, of mm-hmm. Holland, of of Poland, and 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 all of these other countries that have these anti-Islamic uh, sentiments and leaders, I don't believe it's the it's the people in general. It's it's the it's the it's the it's the population of those countries, but it is what is being represented or portrayed in the mainstream media that this, mm-hmm. based on the elections, based on the results, this is what what the, the sentiment is. What what the sentiment is. Mm-hmm. I I tend to disagree with that mm-hmm. because I know and that's the reason why I asked uh, Professor uh, Conway that, that question as well that this next generation has been brought up has been gr- has grown up with a completely different mindset mm-hmm. because they unlike the generations before them they did not they did have the exposure to Islam and the culture that different communities bring mm-hmm. to the table and I think Maybe it's my wishful thinking. Maybe it's my my hopeful thinking that they are able to 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 differentiate between the two, to mm-hmm. draw the line. Okay, this is this is where Islam is and should be, and that's moderate. That's fine. 
and this is the extreme and this is culture and, and the traditions that these but communities I, bring. I find that we get drawn into these debates uh, in the sense that we have to... and. You know what? It is our job. It's incum- incumbent upon us. Yeah. His Holiness uh, Mizra Masra Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, has tasked us as Amdi Muslims to defend Islam. Yeah. Right. And, but I, you know, it's tiresome sometimes, right? Because the religion in itself is perfect. Okay. It's those people who profess that they are. Muslims and you know they do do these horrendous horrendous uh, acts of terror right but then I go back to the point of media and it's media saturation of this negativity uh, or this negative image of Islam globally because you know we don't get that uh, saturation in the media when you have a shooting in America yeah and you know those those, you remember those, the Norway the, massacre? Yeah. Nobody so, labeled so, him a Christian fanatic. Yeah, exactly. They're, 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 the terminology is lone wolf. Yeah. He was, uh, or that, that perpetrator, the shooter will be some kind of... Um, Mental health issue. Yeah, they, they have issues. Yeah. They are outside of society, right? But there's nothing about their religion. Nothing. So why is that? And the only reason that I can fathom is that... Well, the agenda for media, uh, whether it be in this country or any other country, is to be is to give uh, Islam a negative connotation, and that's where I would like to bring in social media now mm-hmm. because it's it's been a game changer. In, oh, I in, think so. From, yeah, from what, what I've experienced in the past years and now, especially in in the last I think two to three months with uh, respect to what is happening in the Middle East, how that has opened the eyes of so many people. And we're not, forget about the politics of things. We're not talking about the political side and the political discussion that is that is ongoing. But the videos, the posts, the reels, the, 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 the comments that you, you see and read on a daily basis on social media, talking about, oh, this was my perception about Islam mm-hmm. back then, and this is how it changed in the last three months. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how many people have, 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 have resorted to social media to express their own, um, how would you label it? A shame, uh, being ashamed that mm-hmm. this is what I used to believe because mm-hmm. I was fed this information through mainstream media. Mm. You're talking about and the, I think the, the, the giants. Actually, the, the, the reason why social media or th- all these social media platforms and why people are resorting to them, uh, to A, they're an easy platform, yes. right? Anyone can get onto there. All you have to do is sign up for an account. But the upshot or personally, I think uh, after COVID or during COVID, yeah. Because everyone was locked down. No one could, you know, you didn't really have print, you know, print media out yeah. there. Um, you still had TV media, but it was always talking about numbers you know, and, the, you yeah. know, the numbers uh, of deceased regarding COVID, which is understandable because it was a global problem. And there you had this exponential growth in usage, mm. right, of social media platforms. And it's there that, in fact, it's not just... Uh, generation X I think that's yeah. is that the current generation that's kind of yeah generation X who are 
more than adept, right, at social media. But even, you know, dinosaurs like myself, right, take to things like WhatsApp, take to things like TikTok, right, to get information. And okay, there is a caveat to that because although, you know, they are platforms of which you can, and this is what I say, put your own opinion out there, mm. at least they're a pointer. You know, don't take it for fact, for sure. Yeah. Don't take it for fact. But at least, right, it's a, it piques your interest to say that, actually, you know what, something that I believed that uh, Muslims did mm. is totally incorrect. That's because true. why? I've gone and done some research now, yeah. you know, and I have time on my hands. So why not? So there is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of the next generation to maybe right some of the wrongs that are being committed right now to lead and make sure that we head into the right direction and to lead the next generations into a future which is based on peace, society, cohesion and uh, a, a harmonious living together. Mm. A research publication in the Bridge Initiative, which is a multi-year research project on Islamophobia housed in Georgetown University, says that in Europe, anti-Muslim rhetoric and policies are popularized to, through the culture lens supported by the Islamization narrative, claiming an impending invasion of Europe and perceived loss of European values. When I say to you, actually, let me, we'll, 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 we'll pose that question to our next guest who's waiting with us online. Mm. And the same research shows that the discriminatory policies reveal a belief that Islam is incompatible with European values. Muslims are perceived as a threat to European identity, and which is why visible indicators of their religion are seen as an attack on European secular values. So you had the burqa ban, you had uh, the, the headscarf, etc. In 2021, the French president Macron introduced the anti-separatism law that restricts the right of French Muslim citizens and essentially forces Muslim religious leaders to take an oath of loyalty. You had Switzerland, we reported on that as well, restricted the rights of Muslim women to religious freedom by approving a ban on the burqa, which is the female veil and modest outer covering. And the list goes on and on. Mm. Joining I mean, us, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just as a comment before we're joined by uh, Imam Ibrahim, that, you know, and this is most probably a question for him as well, right? And I wanted to, that's why I was like leading Professor Conway, that, you know, when we talk about Islam, isn't it really the European countries' fear of culture and yeah. losing their culture, yeah. really? European identity, hence. Yeah, the European identity. But what is the European identity? That is a good question. Yeah. Which probably Imam Ibrahim was... <laughs> yeah, well, well we, we, could, we could ask him that question. Imam Ibrahim Ahmed, uh, a missionary serving in the uh, Netherlands at the moment. He is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Walaikum assalam. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Imam Ibrahim, you are in the Netherlands. I know that you have been brought up in, in the Netherlands. You went to school, you had your friends and whatnot, everything there. Is that for you something that you can understand why there is a fear of Islam in European societies and among their political leaders? Is that something that you can you can understand? You say, you know what, th there's there's legit reasons behind that. Uh, indeed, uh, um it is definitely uh, understandable because, uh, of course, what we see in the media, especially uh, for the last uh, couple of months, 
uh, it is understandable that people are afraid. And of course, the media uh, has a lot of influence uh, in our uh, communities uh, and different uh, backgrounds. And they, um, yeah, they get influenced really easily. So it is a really uh, big um, task for us uh, to remove these misunderstandings. Mm. And why do you think that fear is? Why, why is there this fear? Based uh, on fear what? is because people. The fear is, I think, uh, because uh, people um, they don't um, understand Islam, and what they hear is all negative. Most of the news which uh, shows up uh, in the news, um, it's negative, hmm. and people haven't experienced what the true beautiful teachings of Islam is. And still, uh, till now, in the day, this day and age. Uh, it is unfortunate that people, what I realize, that people don't uh, take that first step to meet and uh, and get to know each other's uh, yeah. cultures yeah. and uh, backgrounds. I mean, um, Imam Ibrahim, yeah, do you think, I mean, obviously, is this a problem of integration then? You know, the integration of Muslims uh, in Europe. I mean, how difficult or easy is that? Uh, for a Muslim to integrate into society in, say, for instance, the Netherlands and to keep a hold on to their own religion of Islam? It is it is a big, a huge task. Uh, I, I must say, of course, uh, it is a big responsibility uh, as Muslims to also uh, integrate in the best possible way. And one of the things is also to learn the language. Mm -hmm. uh, what is also um, really important, what I also realized that a lot of people, uh, they don't learn the language uh, due to that uh, people uh, get of uh, offended, uh, don't understand each other, and mm -hmm. a lot of misunderstanding happen. So yeah, that's a really important aspect. Mm, yeah, because language, you know, is is the basis of communication, right, for everyone. And regardless of this this idea that uh, you know Islam is invading, right, invading Europe, if say for instance you know we were able to communicate, and I think I think intrinsically that is the problem, right? Uh, humans have a fear of the unknown, and if we dispel that unknown. Um, then you know, you wouldn't have all this negativity or this uh, negative image uh, of Islam, and no matter what media would you know profess Islam is, you know people on the streets, people in communities would would then you know see the truth of it really. But it actually does require that first step of integration and actually speaking that country's language. Indeed. Exactly, and what we see now uh, for the last months, of course, uh, you have spoken also about the elections, what happened in the Netherlands. Uh, we see that people have, a lot of people uh, have uh, made the choice for voting on uh, for the party of Gerd Wilders uh, by not being happy uh, about what is going on at the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of disappointments about not um, about not getting uh, the houses, uh, house facilities. Uh, the newcomers who come, they get uh, houses and the old generation, they have to wait. Mm -hmm. And uh, so many other health, uh, health problems uh, in, the, in the community. Uh, it's really expensive also. Mm. Uh, so there are a lot, little, a lot of uh, factors uh, which is uh, counting why um, Gerd Wilders got a lot of votes. Mm. I mean, I think you know, some of the um, factors that you've just said there, 
that uh, you know uh, Dutch people. I was thinking Netherlanders, but Dutch people, right? Yeah, <laughs> Netherlandish. Yeah, Netherlandish. <laughs> but anyway, you know the the actual um, yeah Dutch people have that feeling that actually no, these um, migrants that come over, right, who are uh, uh, you know also Muslims, they're getting benefits, they're getting the housing, they're putting a strain on the infrastructure, right? I mean, these are it's exactly what we hear in the UK. Exactly what we hear in the UK, and most probably what we hear in France. And all I know is from you know here being in the UK that that is such a false argument. Oh yeah, you know, um, just yesterday, um, the Her Majesty's uh, Revenue Services, right? His Majesty. Uh, oh, sorry, yes, His <laughs> Majesty's, right? So basically, uh, you know, the taxes which were collected in the UK topped one trillion pounds in one year, right? So I don't know how much that is, uh, or the Dutch coffers actually took in last year, but one trillion pounds is a lot of money in one year because it could solve the NHS problem. In a blink of an eye, we're talking maybe about four to five billion, right? So, you know, there is money in the system. Uh, I know, you know, it's been published, and we know that for a fact. It's not supposition here in the UK. So it just lends to that argument that actually, this popular type of politician or politics, which is uh, resident currently in Europe here in the UK, it's all just. It's just it's scaremongering. It is, yeah. Just to get. I mean, I remember we've done shows here in the Voice of Home about immigrants and and the hurdles they have to jump through, the the hoops they have to jump through, just to get permission to work. Yeah, and all of them, the the vast majority of them, do not want to sit around. They do not want to uh, be handed out benefits while mm. just sitting in their homes and not do anything. But that is not something that the majority of the public of, of the public will know or will mm. ever ever hear 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 about from from the political elite. Imam Ibrahim, I want to ask you. Um, so, with all of this that is happening, with all let's say there there is a valid fear, there is a there's a valid reason for all of that thinking behind in in the Dutch population. This Islamophobia is 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 valid. How are you as an imam? How are you as a member of the Amdi Muslim community? How are you contributing to to tackle this in Europe and specifically in the country that you are residing in? Is does that responsibility fall on us as well? Yes, definitely. What we do as uh, as a community, we um, hold um, outreach uh, activities like we had peace walks uh, last uh, two months for a uh, uh, um, couple of weeks uh, in different cities and uh, we took the opportunity um, also ever since uh, the attacks um, in on 7th of October uh, we went uh, out uh, on the streets and talked to uh, to the local hmm. people in different cities and uh, to yeah to remove those misunderstandings definitely and um, and what's some of the feedback that you get i mean is, are people appreciative of the fact that you have come out and and tried your best or is it we don't want you here it's a variation but most of the feedbacks were really positive um uh, that we are doing the right thing uh, they know 
they most of the people they also know the meaning of uh, Islam mm-hmm. uh, that it's a peaceful religion uh, but uh, a lot of people um, who are uh, not uh, who are not able um, to take that step uh, if we can help them by going to them uh, to the cities that is the best way uh, we can uh, yeah, put the effort uh, to um, make peace uh, in the society hmm. One last question from my side here is, as an imam, you probably encounter young individuals who come to you and say, you know what, Imam Ibrahim, I've heard this in my school uh, or people at uni are talking about this or even at work. I mean, I've had certain incidences happen to me that could be clearly labeled as, as Islamophobic attacks or, you know, of, the, of that sort. What do you tell them that you as an individual, we as an individual, how can we respond to to incidences like that on a personal level? What do we do for someone who's confused that am I Dutch? Am I Muslim? Am I a Muslim Dutch? Am I a Dutch Muslim? How do you combine these two? Can you combine these two? Can you be a Muslim and a Dutch at the same time? I believe you can definitely, uh, as Muslims, we can be both. Uh, what we do, what we say, we have, every time we meet people, uh, we invite people. We say also we uh, are loyal to our country. Uh, that's also part of our faith. We have to uh, try to integrate as good as possible. We have, for example, New Year receptions uh, this month, uh, which we held all over the Netherlands, and uh, that's also what we share with our locals, with uh, the guests who come. We tell them that that we uh, want to be part of the Netherlands, we want a better, uh, we want a better country uh, for our future generations and please come and visit us uh, and experience how we uh, want to uh, share the love, uh, what we have with our own community, we want to share also with the rest of our uh, community in the Netherlands. Mm. Wonderful. Imam Ibrahim Jazakallah, thank you very much for joining us today. May uh, God uh, help you and assist you in the endeavors of uh, your community in the Netherlands and uh, may it open up the eyes and hearts of the people to see that Islam and the West are actually not that much at odds with each other. Mm. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum to you. Peace be upon you. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. And I think Raza, actually, uh, I'll answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> that you, the, the, you uh, posed to uh, Imam Ibrahim, yeah. Is it compatible, right? Islam with, are you, are you, I think you, you said, yeah. Are they compatible? Uh, can you be Dutch and Islam or is it the Netherlands and Islam or what? So the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, when the Holy Quran was revealed to him, professed that it's a universal Mm. religion. So, you know, my basic geography, O-level geography would tell me, we've got a lot of countries and we've got a lot of races out there. So yes, it's totally compatible. It's as simple as that. Look, I I don't deny the fact that there are people, and and we're talking about teenagers and... and, Because, hold on, because... Why are we even talking about this, right? Because would you even question that for Christianity? Mm. Catholicism, right? Catholicism is worldwide. Yes. You've got Chinese Catholics out there. They don't speak English. They speak Mandarin. Mm. 
So, you know, there is a university out there is that plurality or plurism, most probably. Plurality, yeah. Pluralism, yeah. Pluralism. Can someone call in and just correct my (laughs) English here? (laughs) But, you know, and, and that's why. Um, I keep on kind of pushing this 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 issue, right? Which is that religion is a scapegoat. And although Professor Conway said that's that's quite an easy out, what I mean by that is that we all or all countries and all politicians use some kind of they have an mo, right? yeah. a modus operandi to get themselves voted in. And you know we've seen you know, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, Gert Welders. They've all toned down. When yeah. they first came on, 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 on the scene, very, very vehement yeah. right, in their arguments. And, you know, Mr. Velders, uh, to such an extent that, uh, you know, there was legal yeah. ramifications of that. But um, so they understand that actually to get elected, I need to tone it down. But actually, does that really change my true agenda? And, you know... We as uh, Amdi Muslims, it's incumbent upon us uh, to to point out that you know what you know don't use my religion as a vehicle to get elected. Yes, because you know religion per se is blind, right? Blind, and it doesn't discriminate on color, race, creed. And that's a sign of a good religion. Yeah. Now, we want to conclude this topic. If there is a fear that you have of Islam, then by all means, do give us a call. Send us a comment, send us an email, get in contact with us. And again, something that we have seen in or after lockdown, something that we've seen in the last three months or so, people reaching out to the actual communities to find out, look, I've heard this about you. Mm -hmm. How much of that is truth? I remember Imam Safir, for example, who presents also here in The Voice of Islam. He had someone come to the mosque for the very first time. This was during Ramadan, I think, two or three years ago. And he actually made a vlog out of it, leading up to the point that I've heard this, this, this about Islam. Let's see how much of that is true. And I've seen so many videos out there circulating where people have done similar things. And that, I think, for us to live co- peacefully, to coexist with one another in a society where I said... Islam is not going to go anywhere because it is the fastest growing religion in mm-hmm. the world. You cannot stop that. There's nothing me and I, uh, me and you can do about that. It is here to stay. But what kind of um, message do we send out? What is it that the next generation is taking away from it? That is something that we definitely can influence and should influence. Mm-hmm. The Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, speaking about religion and speaking about Islam in specific, says that the purpose of religion is that man should obtain deliverance from his passions and should develop personal love for God Almighty through certain faith um, in his existence and his perfect attributes. Such love of God is the paradise which will appear in diverse shapes in the hereafter. To be unaware of the true God, to keep away from him and not to have any love for him is the hell which will appear in diverse shapes in the hereafter. Thus, the purpose, the true purpose is to have full faith in him. And everything else then will fall into place. If you have that certainty of faith in God Almighty, if you know that at the end of the day in the hereafter you will be held accountable for your actions, then no sane person, no right-minded 
um, Muslim, who's, who's someone who claims to be a believer, can do any harm to anyone, can discriminate against anyone based on their their ethnicity, based on their race, based on their, the color of their skin or their creed. Because ultimately, it is in stone when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him at his farewell sermon, stated, never in the sight of God Almighty will you be called a righteous. You cannot call, call yourself a believer if you do not accept the fact that nobody has superiority over another person. You can mm-hmm. be black, you can be white, you can be Arab, you can be non-Arab. It doesn't matter. The only way that you will attain nearness and be considered righteous in the sight of God Almighty is through your fear of God, your righteousness. And that righteousness includes dealing, loving, showing mercy, having peace with everyone in society. We're going to go to the next uh, segment in just a little bit after the news that you're listening to. The Draft Time Show today with myself, Raza and Brother Talib. We'll be back after the news. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show where me and Talib were discussing the demise of wow. the Kaiser Franz Beckenbauer. Mm. What a sad, sad um, A footballing great, really. No doubt, no doubt. Um, I, I still shock, remember. really. Yeah, but we all we must go. Yes, exactly, you know. That's, that's that how day, God made us. That day shall come for everyone. Mm. Anyways, moving on to the second topic for today, space exploration mm. and have we lost interest in exploring the universe? So, I don't know about you, right? When you were growing up, uh, obviously you more of a theological kind of uh, upbringing. No, my, than my growing up was very much secular. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I used to love things like Star Trek. Oh, yeah, I still yeah, do. You know, Who doesn't? You know, uh, just, you know, Scotty going, oh, the, the, en- the engines won't take it, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> they won't take it. You know, Klingons on the starboard side, Captain. <laughs> and, you know, that actually, I, I would actually just look at the stars and just think, you know, Wow. Yeah, will we actually get out there one day? I know. Yeah. So I'm talking about for me as a yeah as a kid, that's almost forty odd years ago, right? Mm. And just I suppose when you know you you, you did have maybe a, a decade from the moon landings that the Americans have made, and you know those those words of you know one small step for man mm. or one leap for mankind, I think yeah, um, by Buzz Aldrin. So, yeah, there was that in me, like, wow, yeah, one day we'll be living in these colonies and these civilizations, or not colonies, but no, not civilizations, but, you know, out in space somewhere. Buck Rogers. (laughs) Yeah. Have you actually seen, like, were you, how old were you when when they landed on the moon? Uh, 72. So I was four. Oh, so okay. I didn't I didn't Never see mind. that, but you know, I, I obviously as growing up, it was still you know I was like ten. It's only like let's say um, a decade later yeah. after the the moon landings, I was still you know you know you are because it's something new, yeah. right? It's something yeah. in the news. I mean Sputnik, this 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 you know dog, Russian dog <laughs> rotate you know, is that, okay, not a big deal, but actually landing on the moon on the moon Huge and seeing thing, yeah. seeing those images, whether they be true or not, we don't know right, <laughs> but you know seeing those images, it just peaked personally um you know that spark of 
exploration, really. I think it did in many people. Do you think we will ever be able to establish civilization on Mars? Yes, no, or unsure? That's the question we're asking you on our opinion poll on Instagram. So go to Voice of Islam UK, cast a vote, leave us a comment. And if you want to add something, you can also send us comments through our other social media chapter uh, pl- platforms. Chapter 15, verse 17 of the Holy Quran states, And we have indeed made mansions of stars in the heaven and have adorned it for beholders. Space exploration has always captured the human imagination from the time when Talib Sahib was, Mr. Talib, Brother Talib was <laughs> only 10 years old in, nine, in the 1970s, late from uh, pushing <laughs> the boundaries. That's why you got our listeners here. What a dinosaur we've got in here. <laughs> yeah, you know what? What relevance does he have? <laughs> you see, I've never made this age joke on you, but when you said old levels in the first time, I was like, oh my God, he is actually old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I meant to say GCSEs. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what, anyway, well, that's what gave it away. That's what gave it away. <laughs> Anyways, I'll let that slide. <laughs> so we know um, we know what we have. We know what uh, you know, we've been pushing the boundaries of what we know and challenging mm-hmm. us to explore the vast mysteries of the cosmos. And as we go into further into the 21st century, space exploration has experienced a resurgence marked by significant achievements, groundbreaking discoveries, ambitious missions by certain individuals. So Islam urges us to reflect on the awe-inspiring nature around us. Over and over again, we hear and we read verses of the Holy Quran that talk about reflection, that talk about uh, God Almighty encouraging man, let your gaze flow, let your eye look around and wander around and your eye will return to you fatigued because there is no flaw in God's creation. The cosmos with its incomprehensible vastness, all of that serves as a compelling testament, a, 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 a tapestry of stars surpassing our sandy shores and each planet a captivating masterpiece. And the list goes on and on and on. So in today's show, this part of the segment, uh, this segment of the show, we will try to go a little bit deeper into the current state of space exploration. What are the key developments and the exciting prospects that lie ahead? Going back a little bit more in time, we want to start off with something that we kind of take for granted these days. Telescopes have played a crucial role in space exploration by allowing astronomers to study distant galaxies, to look at stars, to look at planets and come up <clears throat> with a, a little bit more of an understanding in how this universe is set up. The first telescope is said to have been invented in 1608 in the Netherlands <laughs> by an eyeglass maker named Hans Lippershey. However, their first recorded use in astron- astronomy, astronomy was by none other than Galileo Galilei in 1609. Moving on another 60 years, Isaac Newton built his own reflecting telescope in 1668, the first fully functional telescope of this kind and a landmark for future developments due to its superior features over the previous Galilean telescope. Mm. And? And... uh in 1968, actually, the year of my birth. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. The orbiting Astronomical Observatory 2 was launched in that year. 
uh, was the initial space telescope. However, another milestone in space uh, telescope or telescopic history was achieved with the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope uh, back in 1990. And as current as uh, the on Christmas, 25th of December 2021, the world actually witnessed a historic moment in uh, scientific achievement, uh, and this achievement was the launch of the James Webb Space Tele- Telescope, JWST, the largest space telescope ever built from a million miles away. A million miles away, uh, the JWST has revolutionised our understanding of the universe, peering deep into space and revealing its early its early secrets. Uh, the telescope observes primarily in the infrared spectrum, capturing light beyond human vision and providing unprecedented insights into the distant past of our universe. And that's basically so interesting. You're basically looking into the past. Past, yeah. Wow. I mean, and that gives you an appreciation of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the yeah. time is. It's not a, a a linear thing. And what I mean by that, there's no start. You know, we here. No, you know, a day's 24 hours, right? Yeah. Start, stop. But the, the past is actually still going hmm. somewhere, right? And it's going further away. Amazing. Our first guest for today is Dr. Lucinda King. She is the Space Projects Manager at the University of Portsmouth. And uh, having earned her PhD from the University of Surrey, we're very grateful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. King. And uh, welcome to you. Hi. What sparked your interest in space exploration? And and if I may ask, how did you become involved in research at the University of Portsmouth? Because um, you don't really associate Portsmouth with space exploration. It's more like, you know, Navy ships and the the ferry to the Isle of Wight, seagoing. Yesterday was amazing (laughs) weather, by the way. I went there yesterday. So if I can start off with that. So, first of all, uh, I personally got, well, I've been excited in space exploration ever since I was uh, really young, to be honest. And I think one of my earliest memories of being excited by space was actually the film Contact, uh, which if you haven't seen it, is a great film. I think a lot of people probably have uh, similar experiences. Just that, uh, you know, obviously it's not necessarily accurate. Well, we don't know, but um, just the idea of that reaching out and, um, you know, seeing what's out there and all of those possibilities. And then after that, um, I actually looked into SETI. And I mean, I was quite young at this time, so my dad helped me. We set up, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but you used to be able to use like the downtime sort of when your computer was in standby and uh, help process the SETI data, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So I would like just look at the the signals coming in and obviously we never found anything. But it's just that that really sort of sparked it when I was probably about seven and then I went into a physics degree and then I realised that actually space and working in the space sector combines sort of the best of all worlds in terms of combining different fields of science, engineering. Um, you get to look at really out there sort of answering big science questions, but also space technology helps everybody just doing their day-to-day life. So it gave that opportunity to do something that had a bit more of a tangible practical aspect. Because uh, originally I wanted to be a theoretical physicist and I decided that no, space space is uh, more for me. <laughs> Good um, <laughs> So uh, yeah, so then uh, in terms of Portsmouth, so I'm originally from Portsmouth, so okay. uh, it's my hometown, very, very proud of it. And um, 
I was just finishing up my PhD when I saw this uh, job application for um, a, a space projects manager and someone uh, who, as you say, you don't necessarily think of Portsmouth, at least not the university, in terms of being big into sort of um, space technology, but they were looking for someone to come and um, help them grow that area because they were very strong in astrophysics and cosmology, but not so much on that, that space engineering side. And so my PhD was space engineering. And also before that, I did work at Airbus in Portsmouth. So I had some industry experience prior mm-hmm. to my PhD. So uh, they felt I was the, the right person to go and do that. And And even though, you know, People don't often think of Portsmouth as being um, sort of spacey, yeah. <laughs> but actually this quite windy. Portsmouth and Hampshire. <laughs> quite yeah. windy, but not space. <laughs> spacey, <laughs> yeah, I got to exactly. say. But um, you know, there's a lot of space companies in Portsmouth and in Hampshire and Surrey more widely. Mm. Uh, so this region together is actually the largest sort of cluster of space businesses in the UK. But yeah, okay, as you say, not everyone knows about it. So, <laughs> so uh, Dr. King, right? I mean, what's your th- you know, with um, space engineering. So, what's your view currently with the uh, the exploration uh, or the, the this proposed lunar landing? Um, because we were just listening on the news that uh, there was something about separation of solar panels um, on the actual uh, lander uh, segment of uh, the rocket. Uh, this is a layman trying to explain to the expert now, <laughs> so I'm dithering. Um, but that maybe uh, that would impact upon that mission. So that's all engineering at the end of the day, right? Yes, exactly. So I think what they're struggling with is um, getting their solar panels to point in the right direction. And so yeah. if they can't do that, then they're not going to be receiving as uh, generating as much power as they need to. And that could, yeah, as you say, could completely impact the whole mission. So yeah, it, it's an it's an engineering issue, and it would be very sad if they don't manage to um, resolve it. So I think they're yeah they're. Sort but of but I, I was reading that, that uh, I think it's uh, Mr. Thornton who's the CEO of uh, the company that provided or has has built the the the, the landing uh, portion of that rocket. Uh, was saying that he he himself was only giving fifty fifty as a mission success. So is that what, I mean, I suppose there are so many variables uh, that you have to think about trying to land something on, you know, on, on, on this satellite, the moon, which is traveling at such a velocity. Yeah, it's incredibly challenging. And this would be the first time that a sort of a, a private company had mm. ever uh, or would ever um, achieve a soft landing on the moon. So I think yeah, probably calling it 50... I mean, I don't know if I would do that if I was the guy in charge, but, um, you know, he's probably, he's probably not... Well, you're not going to get a lot of investors with that kind of ratio, yeah, are you? Yeah, really? I mean, of course, there'll be, there'll be, there will be insurance and, and mm. things like that. But, I mean, in a way, I guess that's, that's one of the good things about the, the private investment, potentially, is that, you know, NASA have sort of paid for the um, opportunity to use the um, equipment and, mm-hmm. you know, will be training up uh ready for the astronauts to go and use it but in a sense they've de-risked themselves you know because they're paying for someone else to do it so that's mm. one of the ways in which private uh space is sort mm. of supporting uh yeah because we've seen that growth space. but but coming back to more uh in terms of uh, space exploration and education <clears throat> um i mean how do you because it's you know, it is it is not a, exactly a core subject right uh for students to take whether it be O levels 
<laughs> GCSEs maybe, uh, A levels or you know deg- at degree level, right? So how how can you maintain public interest in space exploration, uh, and you know how can I suppose institutions, uh, educational ex- institutions maintain that because it's it is a niche, right? It, I suppose it, it is and it isn't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not okay. helpful uh, thing to say, but um, you're doing the fifty-fifty space... <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm hedging my bet, <laughs> like any good space engineer. Um, so, in terms of the people that we employ in the space sector, we actually take people from a, a huge range of backgrounds, and that's you know in in science and engineering, but also you know you need all of the people that. Uh, you know, right through to, you know, commercial managers, business managers, finance, all Mm -hmm. all of that. But even within science and engineering, um, we take a lot of people who have uh, a physics degree. So my undergraduate degree was physics, and then I went and worked for Airbus. So I didn't actually have any engineering experience. I I always say I sort of became an engineer by mistake, (laughs) Um, but I love it now. Um, But then we also do take uh, engineering students. And probably the closest uh, degree at the moment is aerospace or aeronautical mm-hmm. engineering that's something um, although yeah students will also study aircraft space engineering is starting to become uh, a sort of an undergraduate degree in its own right it already exists at the master's level um, but yeah so in, so in a sense it is you do develop a niche set of skills uh, to work in space engineering but ultimately we just want people that are good at problem solving mm. um, and eager to learn. And actually, you can get those from a, a huge variety of backgrounds. So the main thing that we have to do is to raise awareness of the different types of careers that there are in space and encourage people to think that it's not niche and actually space mm. is for you. And all you need is just yeah to be, to be passionate and to be excited to solve some really challenging problems. Mm. And, you know, in your... Um, in terms of that, then, oh, you know, are there any initiatives at your University of Portsmouth uh, aimed at educating and inspiring the next generation of uh, enthusiasts to, you know, or new Trekkies, I should say? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is something that um, it, we're really passionate about. So we're doing a variety of things. We have started to include uh, space, more space engineering themed master's projects as options for our physics students so to give them that flavor of uh, the the space and the engineering um we have a student space society and that is you know cross any student of from any department can join that so we have students working together from engineering from physics even from like business and law mm-hmm. um you know environmental science and and they all get together and work on projects so that's a that's a really cool uh, thing because it really highlights the interdisciplinary nature of space so they uh, and they're quite they're, well they're very self-motivated um, we're also uh, we have started to run CANSAT competitions so this is where again students from any uh, faculty if they're interested they can come along and we're, we're training them to build um, so not spacecraft that will ever fly but these things called CANSAT so they're the size of a, a drinks can mm-hmm. and they contain all of the uh, subsystems the, the primary subsystems that you would find in a satellite so it's a, like a microcosm uh, of But a is it functional? Uh, so yeah yeah it's functional you can uh, well we tested the first one by dropping it off a roof uh, but <laughs> well, 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 why, why, Hold on where's Dr King? We lost her Why? I was, I was, I'm waiting in bated breath to find out what happened to the can. Did it fly? 
Oh my goodness, we're gonna have okay. to reconnect to Doctor yeah. Listener King. I do apologize for that, but so this is the fifty-fifty with Voice of Islam, <laughs> uh, whether we come on air in live or not. But we, I'm sure we're, we're trying our best to get back to uh, Doctor King there. Yeah, but that is very interesting. Mm. But do you think, uh, Raza, that uh, this, I suppose, this renewed uh, interest in space exploration, right, has that really happened because of? Um, you know these big individuals like Elon Musk with SpaceX, uh, Jeff Bezos going up in his and actually you know fair play to the guy right, having the dream as a kid to I mean he yeah. did he had a yeah. dream yeah. right to fly in a uh, in a rocket and he himself put himself on the line and flew up there right and well and do you think you know that has piqued an interest or I suppose you know reinvigorated you know us Trekkies out there to think that we can do that. I think it definitely had an impact on on what people believe, but I think what Dr. King was saying it's it is at the end of the day it's a niche um, subject or topic or interest, and it's not just how it used to be back uh, in in the seventies. Or you just want to be an astronaut. That's it. Mm-hmm. The the fame and the gla- uh, glamour that was attached to it. There, there's you need the brains basically now. Mm-hmm. It's not just the money. It's not just having that ambition. It's also having the knowledge and the skills. And it, it has to do with physics. It has to do with uh, with with specific topics, with spe- specific skill sets that are required. We're going to reconnect to Dr. Lucinda King. I believe she's back with us on the line. Dr. King? Hello. Yeah, oh, sorry about uh, that. We're so sorry. Um, Apologies. We're having dropped the line for some somehow. But you were saying... What happened to the cat? What happened to the cat? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so we had a little atmospheric sensor, and so even just from dropping it off the roof, it was able to collect data on like temperature and pressure oh. and send that back to a little uh, ground station uh, that the students had also built. So, yeah, so even though it would never fly in space, it still is functional, and it's a really good way of teaching them about mm. um, how spacecraft work. Okay. Wonderful. Now, the question that we um, will actually... Talib asked me, which I'm going to forward to you, is with this um, commercial space ventures that have risen in the past couple of years and uh, the business um, commercial age having started, which is labeled by the Harvard Business Review, that the commercial space age is here. How has that impacted, uh, if at all, um, the the public perception and interest in in space exploration. It's it's a really interesting um, sort of time, and that's a, and that's a really good question because I think it it's sort of gone both ways because the private ventures and you know there's been a lot more launches mm. and there's a lot more publicity about the launches. Um, so I think there's a lot more space just in the public domain anyway but then with that there's the positive and the negative so i mean spacex for example um the work that they've done with like the reusable rockets that's fantastic and i think that's had a really positive public perception and equally um so a few years ago when they launched the tesla into space so obviously that was very controversial because (laughs) that is basically a piece of space junk um however I, i missed that Doctor, yeah, Doctor King. So, so was, there's a there's a there's a Tesla somewhere flying around, yeah. flying around in orbit around yeah, the Earth. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where it has got to. It may have burned up, or I can't remember if they put it on an um, 
outer sort of trajectory. I actually right. can't remember. But yes, it was one of the because it was one of the first test launches of one of the I think like the Falcon Nine or something mm-hmm. like that. And basically, instead of putting so when you do your first test of a rocket, you will put in what they call a dummy mass, just, right? Okay, you know, to test that it's launching the right amount. And they decided, well, instead of putting uh, just a bit of I don't know random material, let's put a Tesla in there. So yeah, it, let's do a bit of advertising as well, right? Yeah, some so extraterrestrials <laughs> that will yeah. come along. So and uh, you know and obviously uh, Musk is quite an um, uh, what's the word a individual kind of character, character yeah. Anyway, and so there's the negative aspect that you know it's it's space junk and we've mm. already got too much of that. But then on the other hand, probably a lot more people tuned in to you know hear mm. about that launch and see that launch than maybe they otherwise would. So it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, and also then you've got people other than you know Musk, but you know like. Um, uh, the the other sort of billionaire space yeah, Bezos. race, so, uh, Bezos, yeah, exactly. So there's people who, unfortunately, maybe their only experience of space exploration is just thinking, oh, it's just sort of billionaire, you know, playboys going up and mm-hmm. you know just you know you know doing a bit of a a contest who can be there first and 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 that's unfortunate. But then there's the other positive side of um, private space, which is that you can uh, fail fast and then improve fast and mm-hmm. then as we touched on earlier you know they're, they're supporting um massive public space agencies like nasa so it's not just uh you know for private interests it's actually serving the public interest and there's, and there's benefits in that sense so mm. i think in terms of yeah the, the public perception it's it cuts both ways it probably just depends what sort of media people are exposed to so in a sense we probably have you know like us like scientists and engineers you know it's good for us to to speak as well to try and give the the positive side of things so that people aren't just Mm. thinking ah spacex and elon musk is a bit silly and you know Mm, (laughs) so it's difficult to manage i mean you know as a final question uh dr king i mean you know what do you think i mean with this uh i suppose this this uh impetus that commercial and private space exploration has given to nations' interests within uh, space exploration. I mean, what do you think now are the significant challenges which will face space exploration? Because, uh, like you just said, you know, when private investment is there, they require results, right? It's not like a public sector, you know, what we can pump so much money into it. It doesn't matter if it works or doesn't because it's public sector. Whereas private investment requires a result, and the results normally come uh, quite quickly. So, what do you think are now the biggest challenges facing uh, space exploration going into you know the not too distant future? So, just just picking up on the the question, I think there is a nuance there because actually the public sector funding is actually often subject to more scrutiny mm-hmm. because it's taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. So, some of the the big sort of NASA and ESA funded missions. The reason that they take so long and cost so much money is because they have to be absolutely sure that they're going to get results. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes with the private funding, if it's their own money, so this is usually at the early stages, actually they can afford to say, oh, well, you know, like going back to SpaceX again. But if it, it you know, I think one of their recent launches of the new thing, it, it blew up and they were like, oh, it's a great success. <laughs> because actually all they wanted was to was to list off. So, so sometimes it's actually the other way around. Um, but picking up on the, on the challenges... Um, particularly to do with the the rise of commercial space. I mean, space debris comes up a lot. We've already Mm. touched on it. But, you know, space is becoming more congested. Um, It's actually reducing 
or it's making it more difficult to find good launch slots, particularly for things like if we want to go and go to Mars or go further afield for doing things like space exploration and science. Um, the amount of uh, spacecraft that we're putting into low Earth orbit, which is typically where the private companies are going at the moment, uh, it's making it more difficult. So that's something that's really going to be a challenge. Um, and that uh, goes along with uh, regulation and licensing and how we're managing that with the increasing number of actors all the time that are seeking mm. to get into space. Um, and then on a more general challenge, I just want to, to end on that because it's very sort of bringing it back to the university. Um, but there's a huge skills gap that we're facing in space. And so, uh, and this is really important because, you know, both the public and, and the private sector, um, the space economy is growing massively. But actually, if we are going to achieve our potential, we need many, many more people, particularly because uh, the kind of current, like the large part of the uh, space sector, that generation is due to be retiring soon. So we're facing this sort of impending uh, massive knowledge leak. Mm. So really, I just wanted to say that if if anybody, you know, if you think, oh, well, I want to do space, but, you know, I'm not an engineer or I don't have an engineering degree or I don't have this, actually there, there will be a career in space for you. And so, yeah, just to encourage people to think of space as an option for them. Talib is going to actively think about applying to the university for that program, Dr. King. So if you get his <laughs> now application I can, I can across... be the space dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lucinda King, Space Projects Manager at the University of Portsmouth. Uh, um, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, peace upon you. Have a great evening ahead. Thank you so much once again. Thank you so much. Good evening. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number. Oh, are we going to do call. the results of the poll? Yeah, we will yeah. do. Uh, I think we'll we'll do it after we've spoken to our next guest. But mm-hmm. on that uh, on that uh, Tesla uh, in space, <laughs> so he launched actually. Uh, Elon Musk actually launched his cherry red Tesla Roadster into space, <laughs> uh, which was in two thousand and eighteen. So five right. years ago, and they say that um, it will be, I think, in 2091 mm-hmm. when we will be able to maybe get as close as possible to... When, when we'll basically come back to to the uh, Earth's orbit. Earth's orbit, and yeah. we'll see it. And we'll think it's a comet, but it's actually a, a cherry red <laughs> roadster from <laughs> Elon Musk. But, you know, that's I think one of the benefits, really, is that, okay... If you think back, uh, I'm old enough to um, remember that your first flight as a child was a big event, right? And okay, we have had aviation for a long time. But in terms of commerciality and it falling into the realms of affordability, let's Mm. put it that way, right, to the general public, it's... You know, from the Wright brothers and you know the first uh, powered flight to commercial flight, there's a huge gap. But it did need those pioneers yeah. to go ahead, right? And you know, for whatever you might say of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and these billionaires, um, I suppose you know we do need them to give that impetus to something like sp- space exploration. Indeed. Now there's actually a website set up. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I just I just got into a, a rabbit hole here. <laughs> there's a there's a website actually. No, it's a black hole. Tracking. I believe it's tracking, a black hole. It's a black hole. <laughs> tracking that roadster. Where's the roadster? Unbelievable. <laughs> it's 66 million miles away from from Earth right now. No, but you know one of the interesting aspects, uh, and uh, with Dr. Lucinda King, 
pointed out, which had never really, because I'm not really thinking about it, occurred to me, was one of the implications of sending, and it's not just all the space junk, right, uh, from these manned missions or unmanned missions, which uh, nations are sending up there. But obviously, you know, you've got nations who are sending up satellites, yeah. right? So those satellites have to get up there. They have to be. They have to be. Uh, they have to have a, a launch element, i.e., a rocket, to get them through the atmosphere to get them, you know, to that uh, orbiting stage. Yeah. And for her to, I say, one of the implications for future missions is that finding a launch window. Yeah. So that you know, as your rocket is exiting the atmosphere, it doesn't hit exactly. a stray satellite. You know, a cherry red. <laughs> roadster <laughs> that's on its return orbit or you know that yeah. And, yeah that's something that we don't think about because well i i hadn't hadn't occurred to me because you think the vastness of space exactly right and we don't know what is actually going on around there so much well i i know one thing is that the, there's a lot of people <laughs> listening to us and i'm uh, inshallah as well god willing through the medium of dab yeah. but i'm sure there's a a lot of other why uh, not? <laughs> Why not? Listening to us as well. Others. In the creation of the heavens and the earth, and in the alternation of the night and the day, there are indeed signs for men of understanding. This is from chapter 3, verse 191. The Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon him, the quest for knowledge and science is obligatory upon every Muslim man and woman. This topic of seeking knowledge is something that we attach to everything when it comes to education, when it comes to space exploration, when it comes to any other topic that def that looks into um, topics such as these. And as Dr. King at the end of uh, her interview mentioned, the lack of skilled people, the lack of people who are actually interested in this and want to go into this or have somewhat of a hesitation is probably one of the things that we will have to look into a little bit more deeper in the next coming years. And with this platform, again, for a Muslim, this is something so hugely important because at the end of the day, you're not just exploring space, you are exploring God's creation. And through that, uh, I think it was the Arabs in the 6th century sitting under the sky, sitting under the, the, you know, the stars, thinking and wondering what is out there. And at the end of the day, as the Holy Quran mentions, when their eyesight was fatigued, when their eyes were, were tired, they returned back, seeing absolutely no flaw. So whatever point or whatever little bit we can contribute to get a little bit more understanding of what the universe is all about, what role we play in this universe, why not? Because we've seen the golden age of space exploration. Now the means and the funds, the technology has grown so exponentially that it seems as if it's easier. But as we've known, mm. there's a lot more hurdles that people have to overcome mm. now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know you beautifully actually linked it up with uh, you know the religion of Islam as well, that pondering and the need to ponder. And in fact, we've actually, I believe, we've got a pre-recorded uh, interview yeah. uh, with uh, <laughs> Dr. Manaza Alam, 
who is herself an astronomer, a National Geographic young explorer and researcher at the Space Telescope uh, Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. She earned her bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy from uh, from CUNY Hunter College in, or actually I just, just read out the acronym, Hunter College in New York City and received her PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from Harvard University in 2021. Now, Manaza also serves as deputy editor for the Review of Religions magazine Science Section, so very apt link to or segue to Islam and space exploration. I would like to welcome our esteemed guest, Dr. Manaz Alam, who has joined us from the United States. Dr. Alam is an accomplished astronomer, National Geographic Young Explorer, and a dedicated researcher at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. She earned her PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from Harvard University in 2021, in addition to her scientific pursuits, Manaza served as a deputy editor of the Review of Religions magazine science section. Assalamu alaikum, Manaza, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Welcome, Salam. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Manaza, could you please share with us how you found your way into the captivating field of astronomy and space exploration? I wasn't always interested in astronomy. Um, I actually grew up in New York City, so um, I didn't really catch a glimpse of the night sky because of the city lights out shining the stars. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always a very curious child. And I would always ask my parents why and how, because I was really curious about the way that the world works. And I think that it was very annoying to them when I would keep asking them, well, why, 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 how? Mm -hmm. um, and I felt that I wasn't really getting the answers to the questions um, that I had about the way that the world worked until I took my first physics class when I was in uh, 10th grade and in, in high school. And it was then that I really started to uh, get the answers that I had to, to having a deeper um, understanding of the universe. And so I knew that I wanted to study physics when I went to university. Mm -hmm. And it was there in university that I connected with a professor who was an astrophysicist and she ran a research department a research group in the astrophysics department at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And she invited me to join the group and I started my own research project. And um, it was there that I had the good fortune actually to uh, take data for my research. And I, in order to do that, I had to go to, I traveled to an observatory um, in Tucson, Arizona. And that was the first time that I had ever been in such a setting. It was the first time that I had ever been uh, in a desert on top of a mountain. And it was the first time that I had ever seen a truly dark night sky. And it was illuminated by hundreds of thousands of stars. And it was just an absolutely breathtaking sight for me. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to continue in astronomy long-term. And so that uh, really solidified my intent to go on and pursue graduate studies in astronomy so that I could become um, an astrophysicist and a researcher. 
Okay, thank you for sharing your inspirational journey with us. Okay, now turning our attention to recent developments, could you highlight some of the most thrilling discoveries or breakthroughs in space exploration and perhaps help us understand how these findings contribute to expanding our knowledge of the universe? So I think that the past few years has been extremely exciting for astronomy with many breakthroughs and discoveries um, in the past five to 10 years alone. Um, and uh, many, many more um, that have been happening just in the past two years with the recent launch of the James Webb Space Telescope and uh, many more to come with that new facility. So I would say uh, across the field in astronomy, some exciting um, discoveries that have happened since um, in the past you know, five to seven years have been the discovery of Proxima Centauri b, um, which is a uh, rocky planet that is orbiting the closest star to us. Mm -hmm. um, that has been a really exciting discovery. Uh, in the past uh, decade or so, we've also, uh, back in 2015, we also discovered the first uh, observational evidence of gravitational waves, um, which were theorized, or, which were predicted by Albert Einstein a century prior. Right. And um, in the past few years, this is uh, very near and dear to my heart because it's my particular area of research. We have been making uh, very deep insights into the atmospheres of exoplanets or planets outside of the solar system. So um, we have learned that these worlds are so much more exotic than we could have imagined. Um, we have discovered molecules that we it predicted would exist in their atmospheres, but didn't have observational evidence for until the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, such as carbon dioxide in the atmospheres of hot, uh, gaseous worlds like Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And we've also discovered these uh, mystery kind of uh, unpredicted and um, uh, unexpected molecules like sulfur dioxide in the atmospheres of such planets. And that molecule actually is a byproduct of a phenomenon called photochemistry or the chemistry that happens when the gas molecules in the atmosphere of a planet interact with light from the star. And so we've been able to make strides in our understanding both from uh, confirming predictions and observing the unexpected in astronomy. And um, it's just a blessing to be a part of a field that is so uh, rich in discovery. Oh, absolutely mind-blowing. Um, Vanessa, being a, a National Geographic explorer involves not only exploration, but also outreach. So can you share with us how you leverage your own curiosity to inspire others, particularly regarding of space exploration? I love doing outreach because it reminds me why I do what I do and the excitement and curiosity and all that I uh, see in the audiences that I talk to just makes me more um, excited and inspired to continue on. Um, I really like to do research because I get to think about the fun facts of what I study and, and what I do on a daily basis in a way that um, is just uh, broken down in, in an exciting way that can be exciting for um, a child, an adult, someone who doesn't have a science background. And um, one of the challenges that I, I take for myself is I want to make sure when I'm doing outreach that what I'm saying is interesting to anyone, even someone who is not an expert in what I'm doing, even someone who may not necessarily um, care so much about science or the nitty gritty of a specific 
chemical process. Um, so for example, one thing that I like to, to uh, share when I do outreach is when I talk about um, the atmospheres of exoplanets and the discoveries that we've made there. One really exciting discovery that we have made is that there are some planets in the Milky Way galaxy within our own galaxy, so our, our neighbors in space, um, that have clouds in them that precipitate out, so they rain out, but those clouds are made of corundum, the mineral that makes up rubies and sapphires. And so when it rains on those planets, those raindrops are ruby raindrops. Fantastic. And yeah, and that sounds like a science fiction world, but it's not. It's it's a real planet that exists within our own galaxy that we can observe and learn that about that. Yeah, great. So uh, moving on to your recent feature in the book, No Boundaries, could you provide our listeners with a sneak peek into the themes or topics covered and how do your contributions in the book relate to the broader context of space, space exploration and astronomy? So the book, No Boundaries, um, features 25 women explorers, so scientists, um, so scientists, uh, conservationists, and uh, photographers who are pushing the edge in exploring our uh, natural world. And um, I was one of the, the women who was featured in the book. And uh, the idea is that despite the adversity that the, the women who are featured in the book have faced, we have overcome those various factors in order to um, be able to do what we love and to, to push boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in particular, in the context of astronomy and space, I think that there's a lot of um, discussion these days about um, uh, diversity and inclusion and belonging. And one of the things that I think is really important to highlight, especially with regard to, to space exploration, is that the universe belongs to all of us. And it's important to um, make sure that we're, we're making this space of exploring the universe that we all exist in open to all. Oh, fascinating. Um, so lastly, um, Manessa, how do you manage to balance your roles as a scientist and National Geographic explorer and a science communicator? And what would you say are the challenges and rewards that come with wearing these multiple hats? Uh, it's not easy. I've definitely had to um, kind of review and review my uh, time management um, system and just how I can uh, get everything done in in a day. Um, but I want to make sure that I continue to do all of the things that I'm interested in and excited to do. And so uh, it's worth it in the end to make sure that I'm, I'm balancing my time and managing my time, not just with my own work and research, um, not just with outreach, but also for um, my family, for my responsibilities to uh, Jamath and um, being involved in my mosque community. Oh, very impressive. So Jazakumullah Manasa for your time today and for sharing your expertise with us. Hey, Jazakumullah, thank you so much for having me. All right, that was uh, Dr. Manasa uh, speaking to one of our producers about her journey and how her experience led her to the point that she is in in her life at the moment. Quite interesting. Mm. And if you want to read more about her work in uh, the Review of Religions, there's a website that you can go to reviewofreligions.com and uh, you can also um, order the 
the hard copy if you want. You can subscribe to that. They also have an app, which is amazing. You can check that out as well. The Promised Messiah, uh, this is something that uh, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community actually has said. We're, we're going to come back to this, actually. They, our next guest for today is with us on the line. We're going to go to Professor Clifford Burgess, uh, Burgess, who is the professor at McMaster University's Department of Physics and Astronomy, as well as an associate faculty member at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show, Professor. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to start off with you as well. When we spoke to Dr. Lucinda King, we I, I, I started off with a somewhat of a personal question. Can you share with us your journey from studying theoretical particle physics to your current role at McMaster University and the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics? How did that How did that start? Okay, it's a, it's a simple story because nothing much happened. <laughs> so well, I, moving I'm, swiftly I'm, on then. <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still doing particle physics, and uh, I, I kind of uh, was a student, and uh, I did a postdoc, uh, uh, which was fun <laughs> in retrospect, although as a postdoc you're always uh, looking for your, your next job. And, and, uh, but I got, was very lucky. I, I got a job quite early in my life, and I spent 17 years at McGill University in Montreal, uh, before moving here, uh, but in all that time, I was doing particle physics, and particle physics evolves over time because where you get your information from changes. Sometimes it's accelerators, sometimes it's cosmology, sometimes it's astrophysics, and so I've evolved in that way. But really, doing the same thing all the time. <laughs> so, um, Professor Burgess, yeah, in your opinion, how can scientists and educators better engage the public in you know the wonders and advancements of you know the field of space exploration. Then, I mean, given, say, for instance, you, your, your, your speciality is particle physics. Yes, yeah. So I, I have, I should confess, so your your audience knows, I, I, I know a little about space exploration, but what I do know, I kind of learned as a member of the public. It's, it's kind of a, the space people are pretty good at, uh, at, at, um, at, at popularizing it just because every, people tend to be interested in it <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way that's not true for all, all of the other subjects in science. And so, you know, the people have a fascination for the sky and, and for astronomy. And, and, and I grew up, you know, when the, the moon landings were happening. And, and so it was that, 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 that was a story that sold itself, really. It was, uh, and I think now, um, if, if anything, the, what people are fighting in space exploration is that it's 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 more mundane than it used to be in the sense that people take it for granted in a uh, in a way that is uh, is funny to think about given that it was such a marvelous thing when it when they first landed on the moon. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but I mean I, I understand because uh, although you know, I, I, you know I I don't remember I wasn't born before uh, I was born just before the moon landings happened. Um, yeah. But my experience as a, as a kid still. You know, there was that fascination, that awe that you know we as human beings could, you know, go to the moon, right, and walk yeah. on the moon, and still survive and come back, right. And I suppose at, uh, at you know, I thought as a, as a child that we were at the cusp of being able to go to, you know, star systems far away because we've already just you know gone to gone to the moon. So right. you know, in the subsequent. I suppose you know that was 1972 so that's over 50 odd years ago we haven't really I mean we've sent unmanned missions to Mars uh we've sent a lot of uh unmanned missions to you know 
uh, out out to space. But actually, in terms of space exploration, do you feel that you know th- you know, can we still advance? You know, is that you know is that challenge uh, still too much for the technology that we have today? Well, you know, you put your finger on the issue there. I think it's uh, you know, distances are vast. That's what that's what we're up against, and mm. and so there's a distinction between. Is space exploration putting people out there, or is space exploration putting machines out there that send us back the information? And I think the, the case for the second part is clear, that that's, that's just been one triumph after the other. Mm-hmm. And we know so much now because of space-based uh, instruments, either in orbit or, or probes that have been sent uh, elsewhere. It's, 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 when you, I, used, I used to teach an introductory astronomy class, and, and the part about planets was always fun to teach because it's so different from what I learned, <laughs> and it's because of these probes, you know. So those have been huge successes, but and they're much less expensive than the the manned program. So then the separate question is, um, is there a prospect for us putting people uh, elsewhere? And and that normally just means not so far away, like Mars or something, uh, which still is a, a, you know, amazingly far away. That I think is a that's a harder issue. I think uh, whether it's cost effective or not is a is a is a more difficult question. Mm. But but that, what I'm the main thing I'm happy about is that those are different questions. So that if the if if it's not cost effective to put people uh, on planets, which I think actually would be very exciting if they did it, uh, it it, sh- it needn't impinge on on what the clearly successful program of sending probes into space mm-hmm. and finding more about you know what's out there. I suppose. I mean, as a professor, right. how do you inspire and encourage your own students, you know, to maybe pursue a career in uh, space exploration, because you know, uh, we, we were talking that, that, to to uh, our previous guest, uh, Professor Professor King, and yeah. she, you know, basically said, you know, look, nowadays um, space exploration or that idea of space exploration um, actually encompasses quite a wide uh, set of disciplines, and in fact, yeah. you know, there isn't specifically, although yeah. there are now degrees and masters of which there are space expo- space exploration specific but actually the um you know the the people that you require to do that research and do to move um you know the the whole field forward actually come from different disciplines so how do you inspire including physics and yeah I, yeah that's that's also a good question i think I, probably none of my students have ever gone specifically into space exploration although one of my postdocs got very far along in the European astronaut search, <laughs> but okay. it was not due to my encouragement or anything. It was uh, she, she was just very talented. <laughs> but I, I think probably the, um, the my answer to this is going to be an answer which might not be what you want to hear, but it's mm-hmm. it's uh, I, I'm a theorist, and so so um, almost anything that we're working on is is in the end of the day pen and paper or computers or blackboard things. And I think that that the uh, that's probably one of the best tools. Not just for space exploration, for for basically anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that 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 the, the physicists, and it's not just theorists. I think the physicists, the, the 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 problem, the mathematical problem solving tools, and the computing skills, and 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 facility with experiments, uh, is such a versatile uh, talent that it's something which is in demand everywhere, including in space exploration. So 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 people. So, so if your if your goal is to is to um, take part in an interdisciplinary area like space exploration. The best way to get uh, there and make success is to come with a good set of tools. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that people who are interested in in going in that direction, which is kind of more or less behind your question, uh, should 
choose, it doesn't have to be physics, but I think physics is a particularly good example of it. Mm. Uh, choose something which has got a lot of portable skills. And I know that what they're looking for in space exploration is if it's people going up there, it's a, they're looking for situational awareness, they're looking for calmness under pressure, they're looking mm -hmm. for Problem a lot solving. of uh, uh, skill sets, problem solving, yeah. exactly, uh, ability to deal with, uh, with computers, all those things. And anything that gives you a solid founding in those is a good school skill set for making the transition to space exploration or any other inter interdisciplinary thing. Mm. Professor Burgess, thank you very much for your time. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but uh, I'm sure we will revisit this topic and uh, maybe ask you for some extra time uh, in the next show. Thank you so much at this point. We wish you a great uh, evening and a good day ahead. It, it was lovely speaking with you. Thank you very Peace much. Peace be upon you, sir. Thank you so much. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. We are coming to the end of uh, today's program. As promised, we will give you the answer to the poll in just a little bit. Oh, that was my mic. But um, quick recap, Brother Talib. Mm. Uh, as regards to space exploration, well, it's just uh, an amazing field, actually. And although, and I think both our guests uh, intimated, actually really pointed out that there isn't necessary, if you wanted to go into that field, a spe specific discipline. You need to just be, whether it's a physicist, whether it's a mathematician, whether it's an engineer, just be um, the best you can be at that uh, discipline. And, you know, just I think that is the wonder hmm. of that field because there's no wrong answer. Okay, the wrong answer can, you know, um, result in a rocket blowing up, but that is what it is because you're on the, you know, you're on the boundary of of invention, aren't yeah. you? Right, and innovation, and it's all bound up there. So, twenty nine percent of you uh, say that yes, we will be able to establish civilization on Mars. Forty four percent of you said no, and twenty six percent were still unsure. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much to Maria Ahmetouba and Durasimin Mirza for producing and researching today's topic, and thank you very much to you as well for listening in. We are going to be back with you tomorrow, inshallah, with the Tuesday edition of The Draft Time Show. Don't forget tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. The Breakfast Show team will welcome you with their Tuesday episode of their show. And uh, as I said, uh, The Draft Time Show will be back at 4 p.m. tomorrow from all of us here at the Voice of Islam Studios in London. Thank you very much for listening in. Have a great evening ahead and assalamu alaikum. May the peace be upon you.